you'll turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 26. What we're going to do is cover verse 6 to the end of the chapter. If you'll remember what we heard last week, uh, Jacob uh, met with Esau. Esau comes in from the field. He's hungry, and he's willing to trade his birthright for a bowl of soup. Then we saw at the end of at the beginning of this passage that the Lord, after that, had brought a famine on uh, on the land, and He told Jacob, or sorry, Isaac, not to go back to Egypt. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning, in the middle of the famine, with Isaac having to trust in the Lord, and we'll see then how God preserves His people. Would you pray with me as we turn to His Word? Lord, Your Word is for our instruction, for the revelation of who You are, God, towards Your people. We thank You for Your might and Your power that is revealed to us, and we ask, Lord, that You would use Your strength and Your will for our good purpose this morning, that we might see Christ and know Him, that He might be magnified before us, that we might trust Him, that we might, whether we, uh, Lord, are in abundance or have to do without, would always turn to Christ. Give us faith, Lord. Help us even in unbelief. We pray for the power of the Spirit to be among us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. With Beginning with verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar, and when the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he'd been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and he saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled the earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water's ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. 
Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also, so he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it, so he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Philcol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, why have you come to meet me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank, and in the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, this, the name of this city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was forty years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Barry, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemaoth, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. This is God's word for his people. You, you may have uh, recognized that you've heard a lot of that before. Isaac is uh, in many ways doing exactly as Abraham, isn't he? He's functioning in the same way. He's afraid for his wife. He's stumbling. He's falling. I think it's helpful to remember, especially as a lot of these cycles keep happening in Scripture, what God is revealing and what God is showing us from His Word. These stories are situated in the timeline of God's redemptive plan to bring about a Messiah. And so we see some of the greats, right? We see Adam, Adam and, and we see Abraham, and we see Noah, and we see David, and we see all of these men stumbling and falling as it marches on towards a good end, towards a Messiah. That's where God is taking us. And He's given us here in this chapter little snapshots of the life of Isaac and the things that he's gone through. And so as we look at these snapshots, I want us to draw out three main things. One, God preserves us in our sin. Two, God preserves us by his blessing and promise. And three, God preserves his kingdom. First, God preserves us in our sin. Isaac, sorry, Isaac obeyed God by going down, not going down to Egypt. That's a good start. But once in Gerar, his faith has stumbled. He sought to preserve his life by his own means, by lying about his wife and calling her his sister. And that's not new to us. Verse 7, it says, When the men asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say, My wife, thinking, lest the men would kill me. Instead of 
trusting God who made him great. Promises he has feared man and he lies. Had he forgotten the God when he was a young man and he was bound by his own father and laid on the rocks for sacrifice, the God who had made promises, who saved him by providing a ram in his stead. Just verses ago, in verses 3 through 5 from last week, God reiterated his promises to him of salvation and blessing. And God did so not just to tell him of protection for physical safety, but to keep him from sin. Instead, yeah, there's a famine in the land, but we see a famine of a different kind here. There is a famine in Isaac's faith. He sees how God preserves his life from physical famine, but his God is still too small for him that he looks around at the Philistines and he fears for his life. How quickly he has forgotten that it was God's presence and promise that preserves his life. At the end of the day, sin really is self-preservation. It feeds our desires and our inclinations. Sin has us playing God and doing what we think is best for ourselves with no regard to God's commands. But the great deception of sin is that though we may think we are preserving our lives, we are actually losing them. Isaac functionally is thinking this way. I'll sin and I'll save my life. You see, his fear was misaligned. He feared man rather than fearing God. What is most wonderful about our God is that He preserves us even when we sin. And He does so because of His promises and His faithfulness to us. This is the message. It's not just this snapshot here, but this is the message of the Word of God, of all the stories in the Bible. Scripture doesn't shy away from showing us the failures of all the characters, of all the great stories, those things that you memorized in Sunday school. It doesn't hold back from showing us their sinfulness. That we are like them in many, many ways. Adam had every advantage and yet he sinned. Noah, the first thing he does when he gets off the boat is gets drunk and sins. Abraham, an idol worshiper. Abraham, who was willing twice to give his wife away to lie about her. Isaac. David. Saw a woman that he wanted and killed the husband and took her for himself. And it goes on. Even Peter denying the Christ three times, there is no one to be found who is righteous. And yet, the promises go on. Isaac may be the promised seed, but he is not the promised seed. And God has taken us all the way there. And these little snapshots tell us the promise, yes, it will come through Abraham and through Isaac, but it's not Isaac. The famine was meant to shape 
Isaac's faith and build a foundation of obedience and trust in God. No one is perfect but Christ. And God knows this about us. There's some comfort in that, isn't there? That is why we find the promises. You've heard it over and over. How many times have we heard it? The promises repeated over and over again. Oh, how we need to hear the gospel over and over again. He promised that he would save us because of the commitment to the chosen one. And God preserves us in our continual sin by Christ who bore our sin. God was gracious to Isaac by saving him and his bride from the Philistines. This doesn't mean that we can sin with no regard to its consequences just because God is a God who keeps His promises. Instead, it highlights how gracious, how patient, how faithful our God is with us. And that is why He rebukes Isaac. He lets Isaac know this is sin. He he does so. You don't hear God's voice doing it. He uses Abimelech. Now, this isn't the same Abimelech that's done this before. Abimelech's kind of like the the name Pharaoh. Abimelech and Philcol, that's what the current king of uh, the Philistines are called. So Abimelech does what the other old Abimelech did. Now he does it with his son. He rebukes him, calls him out. A pagan has to call out this, this child of God and say what he has done wrong. I wonder, what would the snapshots of our own life look like? I think there would be times, just like Isaac, just like Abraham, where there we would see many commendable things. But what about the snapshots we wish we could purge from the metaphorical picture album of our life? What hope would there be for us And this is what God is redemptively marching forward in Genesis to reveal to a promised seed from the line of Isaac that would be our salvation. And that is why it is important to see what God is doing. To see that God is the main character. He saves His Son because of His Son, Jesus. He sorry, saves this Son where Isaac tried to justify himself before Abimelech in verse 9, we can see Christ. Isaac said, because I thought, if you found out she was my wife, that I would die because of her. This husband sets his bride at risk to preserve his own life. Sin is so self-centered But Christ will do the exact opposite to preserve us in our sin. Christ instead would lay down His life to preserve His bride. Let us never doubt that we share in Isaac's inclinations. We are absolutely sinful. But what should dominate our thoughts is God's promises and presence to inform our faith and our obedience without compromise. Our first point is to turn us from sin. If you do so, you will be blessed. Our second point, God preserves us by His blessing and promises. 
It's remarkable that the next snapshot we see of Isaac's life following his sinful behavior is overwhelming blessing. We may infer from this that Isaac repented. He learned his lesson. His spiritual famine was answered by spiritual blessing from the hand of God. But I want you to also remember something that's shocking about this next, uh, this next snapshot of his life. If you remember, there's famine in the land. Canaan is in the midst of a famine. But Isaac, it says in verse 12, sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. Our main character comes to the forefront again. In the dry and dusty wilderness, Isaac is thriving. Oh, how Israel must have read this for the first time when Moses wrote it down and delivered it to them and noted, yes, that's the God we know. It says that the Philistines even took note of what was happening special to Isaac and it, they envied him. You see, they're pagan gods. The ones that they made sacrifices to could not relieve them of famine, but Isaac's God is causing him to thrive. And the Philistines make every effort to overcome uh, Isaac's blessing. They stop up the wells that Abraham had dug, and, and at last they seek to drive Isaac uh, away from their presence. Abimelech says to him in verse 16, you need to go away from us, man. You become too strong. You are mightier than we. And a great light is shining in Canaan, in the land of the Philistines, in Gerar. Light that Yahweh is like no other God. And they recoil at it and they drive him away. One thing this might teach us is that God's blessings should be evident in the world. In a world that is in a famine of truth, God's people should thrive in knowing the truth. It is a truth that makes us a people happy in blessing and hopeful in trial. The world can't understand it. How can someone go through such suffering and give thanks to God? Or how can someone in such blessing be so uh, abundant in their gifts and their pouring out and giving praise to God? Did they not achieve it themselves? No, there's something different about Christians in the world. If not this one truth alone, Christian, you have inherited heaven and earth in Christ Jesus. What immense blessing has been poured out on you in Christ Jesus? Is it evident to the world around us? Is there anything enviable about you, a Christian in this world? Now, as I think on Many in our congregation, you might give a little pushback here. I don't feel blessed. Where's my hundredfold? I am pressed on every side by trial. My circumstances do not feel like blessing. Then let us go to the next snapshot and see, the next snapshot of Isaac's life and see what the Lord teaches not everything is about these fields that sow and give a hundredfold, but look what happens. 
Because Abimelech drives him away, Isaac is forced to transition from fields that he has worked and toiled over, that he has reaped immense blessing for his family, to go into a valley. A valley where it's a wasteland. If they wanted water, they had to dig for it. Dotting the land uh, is all these little monuments of, of, of wells that show that God once sustained Abraham as he lived in this valley. God's faithfulness is on display. And they, they find the wells and they're filled up by the Philistines, but nonetheless signs that God preserved Abraham when he was in this valley. And we see the spiritual growth that Isaac has gone through in this snapshot. He's not conniving anymore. He doesn't know how God will preserve him, but he trusts him. What is more, he trusts him in conflict. Just when he finds water, just when they finally find something for their parched lips, the Philistines come and say, that's our water, move on. So he digs another. They do the same. But we don't see Isaac throwing up his his arms and saying, I give up. He doesn't say, we would have done better if we went back to Egypt. Instead, he presses in and trusting God's promises. Finally, in verse 22, he digs a third well and finds water and is at peace. For now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. Isaac keeps moving and he keeps digging as if the digging were an extension of his faith. How often we face trial and we sit down and we are ready to give up. I can't go on, Lord. How often do we question the Father's love for us when we face hardship and we face conflict? Rather, we should keep digging. When we are in the midst of trial, we should dig all the more into the promises of God. There is comfort in the digging. We mine the scriptures and dig deep into the word. We find the water that satisfies us in trial. And the, Lord, and the world will, will seek to, to, to steal the joy. But if you dig into the word, you will discover that God has made room for us in this world. That your spirits may be lifted when you are in the valley as you drink deep of the water that wells up to eternal life. There is a wellspring of water for those who know where to find it. And Isaac was just as blessed in the wilderness as he was in the fields that yielded a hundredfold. This is what the valley teaches us in this life. That our resources were never enough to sustain us. It is God and his promises that ultimately sustain us wherever we are. In the valley, we taste more richly, I think, with a, with a deeper satisfaction, the blessings God has bestowed upon us for the day. And what's the result? The result of this valley is that it leads to worship. Isaac goes up to Beersheba, and the Lord satisfies him better than any earthly well. And what does God do in this worship? Verse 24, he reiterates to Isaac the gospel. He says, I am the God 
of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. He keeps repeating that refrain twice in this chapter alone. Why? Because we are so forgetful. We need to hear his promises over and over again. Brothers and sisters, you need gospel refreshment. You don't just need it on Sunday. You need it during the week. You need to drink deep of God's word and be reminded of the gospel that has been given to you. It needs to be a part of the rhythm of your life. Just like Isaac, who in verse 25, called upon the name of the Lord, pitched his tent at the altar, and dug a well for refreshment. The gospel will center you on Christ. Trial has a way of clarifying this. When all other means of comfort dwindle, you have one well. That will never run dry. One well that will always have streams of refreshment. And it will situate you in the promises of God and preserve you. And it's Christ. He is the living water. So finally we see in our last point that God preserves his kingdom. Since the fall, God has told us that there are two kingdoms in this world. In Genesis 3, he spoke to the serpent and he said, I will put enmity between your offspring and Eve's offspring. And we see in our passage this reality of these two kingdoms. Abimelech came to Isaac with his advisor and his commander of his army and it's fascinating, isn't it, that the king comes to Isaac. The king is humbled before Isaac and before God. Abimelech says to him in verse 28, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm just as we have done you no harm. He makes a statement, for you are blessed of the Lord. God has humbled the enemies of Isaac without Isaac having to do anything. God is the main character. He humbles the nations and he brings kings to their knees. Abimelech is no match for the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he confesses as much in his plea for peace. He confessed with his mouth. It's important to note. But not with his heart. Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's the first requirement, but or and, believe in your heart, you will be saved. Abimelech may have achieved earthly peace, but without faith, he will still face the God of Abraham and Isaac. Only those who believe the gospel will be saved. And we see as much in the closing of the chapter. It isn't enough to be a descendant of Abraham, one who has faith like Abraham. For even Isaac's own firstborn son, Esau, who had every advantage to the promise, he despised it. That this man would sell his birthright for a, a, a pot of soup, lentil soup, by the way. I, I wouldn't sell anything for lentil soup. 
I heard Billy King's the same. He gave it away, a pot of stew, and he does now everything in his power to despise the line of Abraham. He marries two Hittite women and spent the rest of his life making life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. You see, he is the prodigal son who recklessly has spent all his inheritance and he has no plan to return. And all of this, every bit of it is instructive. First to Israel, who, have, who would have read it first. Like Isaac, they come from the line of Abraham in which all the promises rest. Like Isaac, they sin and yet God preserved them in his mercy and grace. Like Isaac. They are never to return to Egypt from which they were saved like Isaac. He humbled the nations before them as they entered Canaan. Like Isaac, he gave them water and a barren place. And like Isaac, he gave them a place to live. They are to believe God's covenant promises in order to be saved. But Romans 9 tells us that Israel despised the promises and misplaced their trust. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because of his offspring. Though through Isaac shall your offspring, offspring be named. This is what it means. This means it's not children of the flesh who are the children of God, but children of the promise who are counted as his offspring. Children, I'm going to speak directly to you for a minute. It's not enough that your parents believe in Christ. It's not enough that you were baptized, many of you, as little babies. It's not enough that your parents wake you up and bring you to church on Sunday morning. This is not what makes us a Christian. It is believing in Christ Jesus. And that you must own in faith. It must be yours. For even Esau, who was a child, a child of Isaac, the son of promise, it's not even his. He set himself in those last verses against God and against Isaac and Rebekah. There are two kingdoms in this world, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Those are the only two options. And sitting on the throne of the kingdom of God is Christ Jesus. And whatever peace can be known in this world is as temporary as the peace that Abimelech is trying to make or the peace that Esau has as his little family grows and grows until it becomes Edom. The only peace that we can have that is lasting is the peace that Isaac had in trusting in his God. You either trust in the promised one who is Christ Jesus or you set yourself against him as Esau and Abimelech did. And no covenant that Abimelech makes will be that saving covenant except to turn to Christ, to turn to the God of Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. So lastly then, this passage is instructive to us as well. Like Isaac, the Lord rebukes us in our sin. And he answers that rebuke with the gospel. And he repeats it over and over and over again to us that we might be reminded and believe that we, uh, when we stumble like Isaac, 
we may be renewed in its promises. And whether we be in a land reaping a hundredfold or in the valley bearing hardship, God is with us. And like Isaac, God gives us wells of living water. Just like Jesus said to the woman at the well, whoever drinks of that water, it will, I will give him, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a living spring and it will well up to eternal life. Genesis 26 is just a snapshot. Just a snapshot of what God is doing in redemption. He will preserve his kingdom and it will outlast this world and God will preserve his people for an everlasting kingdom and he will hold on to you and he will never let you go and he will preserve you even when you stumble and fall. And he will pour out his blessing on you in grace and mercy and he will keep you until he has brought you safely home. All this is the truth for Christ has secured it in his precious blood. What is left then? Faith and repentance. Turn to Christ and walk in obedience. For his kingdom is at hand. Amen. Let's pray.